Hello and welcome to the Cashflow Show. Today's guest has been a business consultant and facilitator for over 15 years. He's been a man that has helped and inspired numerous businesses in and around London in order to look at how they grow their businesses, how they develop their businesses, and more importantly, how much they get paid for the work that they do. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, if you just wait one moment after the titles, you'll hear exactly what we're talking about. See you then. Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Coke, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week, we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film, and a favorite single or album, and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at The Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. Hello and welcome to The Cashflow Show. My name's Clayton M. Coke and I'm your host for today. And today's guest is Mr. Morton Patterson of Morton Patterson Consulting, um, who's been kind enough to take some time out of his busy schedule to join us. Welcome, Morton. Thanks for having me, inviting me, I should say, Clayton. You're most welcome. Morton, you've obviously had quite a bit of a career. I've had a look at your bio online and in LinkedIn. If I should make my disclosure quite complete, I've known you for quite a few years. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but at the same time, that's what the show is all about. It's about bringing people's attention to others who they may not know, they may not have met, they may not have had the opportunity to meet, but who could provide good quality advice, business stories and direction obviously to find those people who can bring something important that you can take away in your business on a day-to-day -day basis. So Morton, tell us a bit about you. What is your business and what do you do? My business is I work with people in professional services, solicitors, creatives, accountants, people who generally charge time for money. And by that, I mean, they have a system where they're charging by the hour for their services. I have a business at the moment where my primary service is helping businesses to transition from the hourly pay process to implementing a value-based service, which means that they no longer charge by the hour, but they charge by the basis of the outcome, the benefit that the customer experiences. So the purpose of my, my business is that I do that either through one-to-one -one consulting or I do it through a series of workshops on how to price and value your services and also through doing talks, networking groups or, or business events. That's excellent. If you look at most new businesses, the only way to describe the confusion surrounding pricing and value is it usually sends most people completely crazy. I narrowly avoided getting thrown out of my house due to my <laughs> inability to price for my services correctly. And I'm sure that there are other people who would have joined me sleeping under the embankment from the train station <laughs> because I started in business and hadn't really got a clue as to what it was worth what my time was worth and whether exchanging time for money was a viable approach 
to what my business does. So in terms of what you do with businesses, let's go back in order before you started giving this kind of advice. What kind of career did you have? Is it, first of all, is this your first business? That's always a good thing to know. It's a very good question. And it isn't. It isn't my first business. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if we have sufficient time for me to talk about my very long standard career because it's been relatively colorful, but in the interest of time, we're going to summarize it. Initially, I graduated in IT, business and information technology, and had the good fortune through an agency to go into Ernst & Young doing IT support because that was my role. And I was working as a contractor then, which later transitioned into me working as a consultant there in their IT department, advising on how to implement IT systems. Okay. That was a job I held for several years. And I had an aptitude, I'd say I had an aptitude for technology, but I wasn't somebody that, that tinkered with technology all the time. But I, I you know, I have an understanding oh, and cool. appreciation of technology. And I did that, but uh, we're talking about, you know, was this my first business? So I, I ran a workshop last week on pricing and value, and I was talking about the history. And while I was doing that role, I had an interest in audiobooks. And it was a burning interest. And while working... I just couldn't shake the desire to start an audiobook business. And I went to America at one stage and realized that people used to listen to books on cassette at the time and cassette and CDs. I thought, why don't I do that in the UK? Because I lived in England, obviously. And so I decided to come back and research it. And I wanted to do it specifically at the time for the BAME market, because I thought that there was no such product or service available where in one place you could find an existing audiobook by a black or ethnic author. You couldn't find them anywhere. So while working, I researched it and there was actually a business and organization called The Talking Bookshop at the time of Wigmore Street. And I would go in there and I would listen to their audiobooks all the time and buy books from them and was increasingly ex interested in, you know, wh what is this about and why is it and are black people buying audiobooks and stuff? Anyway, at one stage I got on a plane, went to New York and met Random House, Penguin and Time Warner and said to them, this is what I want to do. And they said, I remember one of the executives at the time says, why are you looking to do an audiobook business in the UK? And I says, well, I live there. Cut a long story short. I decided to leave my job, full-time role, and launch the audiobook business, which at the time was called Books Talk To. And it was the first and the only audiobook business in this country for the black market. And I ran that for several years, having resigned from my full-time job and remortgaging my house. I ran that and I learned the valuable lesson of the cost of educating a market which really didn't know that it needed that service or that product. So that was my first business. And in talking the story and calculating it the other day, I think I lost somewhere in the region of an excess of 100, 130,000 starting that business, launching it. Uh, when I look at the salary I, I could have earned in the time, I lost a substantial amount of money, but learned the lesson that I was a visionary, but I didn't really know how to develop a business successfully. And now you have companies like Audible mm -hmm. advertising through Amazon, Absolutely. literally throwing the books at you left, right and center. Yeah, yeah through credits and everything. And yeah. I suppose you created a market before podcasting existed because that's effectively what they were, you know. Absolutely. 
Everything is a reinvention, as you know. You know, when I was doing it, when I launched it, Amazon was just beginning to get leverage and beginning to get some traction, but Audible didn't exist. And you used to buy and listen to audiobooks on CD. Yeah, the downloadable facility was just in its infancy. Yeah. And I mean, even to this day, when you think about it, such a, a one-stop place where you could go and just imagine a shop where you could find any audiobook, be it African, Indian, Caribbean, African-American, you cannot find them as easily as you could with books talk to you. Go there and all of the books are there. Sidney Poitier, Maya Angelou, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, all of them. If they existed in audio, we had them. But the, as you said, those are the days before Audible. And so now we have change and you know, new things in the world. And so that's development, I suppose. It is development. And what I find fascinating is, is that, as you said, sometimes you can have a great idea. Mm. And, I, and when we talk about technology, I remember when I first started in business, I remember that directing a mobile phone from a landline. Oh my God, <laughs> the pain. Absolutely. The pain. Absolutely. But now... You can get numbers, just pick them literally up off the street. Yeah, absolutely. People giving away numbers for free. Yeah, and, yeah, but yeah. the fact is, is that some of the things that we tried to do at PRMS couldn't be done 17 years ago when yeah. we started. The mm-hmm. idea of you've got cloud bookkeeping that attaches to the CRM, attaches mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the signing the document. Mm-hmm. I'm into to music in a big way, and I, I always mention it during the podcast. But one of the things is that whereas now my nephew can sit down and make a hit record on his laptop. Mm-hmm. You can literally wake up in the morning in your, still in your pajamas. You're, hopefully you brushed your teeth or something, but you're in your pajamas. You can get up, you can go to your laptop and you can m- build a company. Mm-hmm. You can get a website. Mm-hmm. You can get a VAT number. Mm-hmm. You can basically create anything that you need mm-hmm. in order to have a business by lunchtime. Absolutely. Open a bank account online, every single thing, credit cards, the full Monty. And the fact is you haven't left your house yet. Yeah. Mm. That's how things have changed. It's amazing. Mm. So I didn't know that about you. So that's really a very, very interesting point. Mm. And the fact that you were in that position to be so far ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. And, but the fact is maybe the audience wasn't there for it at the time. It wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you managed to start off at Ernst. Mm. Is it Ernst and Young? Ernst and Young. Ernst and Young. Mm. So you were Ernst and Young. So you then were there. How did you transition from your IT role to your subsequent, uh, the role that we find you in now, which is, you know, effectively mentor, coach, etc. Mm. How did you make that transition? It's a very good point. It was not strategic. It wasn't a plan. When the business is failing, I attended a program, a workshop on NLP. My partner at the time suggested that I attended it. I went on it and realized that I really enjoyed it and that the people who were delivering it said, you have an aptitude for this. So I learned NLP, became qualified. I graduated in it, in becoming a practitioner and then moved from that and then decided to do training of soft skills and enjoy that as well. And that, in doing the soft skills, I realized I had been through the schools of hard knocks with my own business. And so I started to do small workshops on business and guidance and stuff with the the organizations that I was working with. So I mixed that soft skills stuff with my knowledge of 
Bookstalk 2 and how the mistakes I'd made. And then after that, realized that I really enjoyed it and then started to do some more retraining in terms of how to how to develop a business much more effectively, what is needed and what, what the challenges were. So when I moved from Ernst & Young, I jumped, started the Bookstalk 2 business. I realized that I needed some more skills. I retrained, went into soft skills training, learned to facilitate, learned how to train, and then integrated that skills with my business knowledge and then did some more training to come really much more qualified in terms of developing business training. And that's what led to the formation of uh, Morton Patterson Consulting. So you've now then really graduated from effectively going, as a, going in as an IT person, then realizing you've got an aptitude. So you then lock into the soft skills aspect mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. That even then, that was still a bit ahead of its time, really, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Well, I think it wasn't, it, it was just called a different name. Soft skills is all about managing and relationships with people and it's behavioral skills, yeah? And I have always had an interest in, I think it's all part of personal development and that is in the development of yourself or the development of others. Yeah, the soft skills training was really helping people to understand how to communicate more effectively. Uh, We look at somebody having a technical aptitude, but they may be very poor at listening and communicating with people. They may be very poor at just building rapport with people. So my thing around soft skills was was helping people to develop those skills a bit more effectively. Well, to me, I always found that with the soft skills aspect of it, it's something that's been very underrated in business. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people concentrate very heavily on facts and figures mm. and the bottom line, mm. but all you're doing effectively is managing relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think something that Quincy Jones, the record producer once said, he said, the fact is, is that the most important thing that you need as a record producer is not necessarily the most talented skill for yourself, but the, the most important thing is, is learning how to manage people to get the best out of them. Absolutely. And the fact is, is to know what people's strengths and weaknesses Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of people going to business is that they don't seem to understand how to deal with people and that there are certain people who can be left alone mm-hmm. and they can just deliver the goods. Mm-hmm. There are certain people who want certain kind of uh, directioning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or there are certain people who literally will want you to take them through every stage. Absolutely. You're, you're spot on with that um, explanation. And I think the key is, and I, I think a good leader, a good manager, is being able to use that as a key aspect of your work of managing and leading people. I know that for myself, I am a good person. I am a creative. I'm a visionary, which is how I thought of the book's idea, which is how I've created the business that I have now. But my strength is not in detail. So I need somebody who, I don't mean it literally, who does a sweeping up for me, who makes sure that everything is tidied up because I'm, I'm just thinking of the bigger picture, you know, and that is my skill. I'm also the kind of person that you know, you give me the boundaries that I can work on, but leave me to run around in the room as I want to. My thing is not to be tied down, but to be allowed to roam, and therefore my creativity can fly. So it's, it's a management or a leader or anyone who, who has that ability to understand how their teams work and having the right soft skills to be able to do that, that I think is very important. So we talked earlier about failure, mm. and failure is very fashionable now. Mm. 
Now, it's taken me a long time to embrace failure. Mm. And that has probably got a lot to do with that West Indian upbringing of you get it right and you get it right once. Mm. <laughs> and you, there is no opportunity mm. to get it right again. When I was growing up, there was never the attitude of, well, if you make a mistake, it's uh, not a problem. Mm. It was like, you're going to do this and you're going to get it right. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So real life and especially business doesn't facilitate for that. No, it doesn't. And I'm only just coming to terms with that. I, I, I describe myself now as a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> Makes because, absolute sense. Because I would spend so long perfecting something so it looked fantastic that ultimately what would happen to me is that I'd never get the job done. Absolutely. And sometimes I've learned now to just let it go, mm. just to let it go. Or also as well, as you said, when you're talking about telling people that what their boundaries are, what they can or can't do. What the thing is with a lot of entrepreneurs is, is that idea of I can do it all. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a very much a myth between a lot of, and I'm not going to give millennials a hard time, but millennial um, entrepreneurs mm -hmm. of this impression that I can do it all. Everything that, you know, I can do it. You, you know, the cleaning, I can do that. No, I'm the washing, I can do that. I can do every single thing. Mm -hmm. But you know that in terms, and you've seen this in other people's businesses, it's only when you let go of the reins mm -hmm. that your business really starts to grow. I, you know, I entirely agree with you. And I, I would attribute the failing of the first business to being that I was a lone soldier and I didn't understand the importance of collaboration and partnership. Yeah. And not thinking that you have to do it, everything. Even with my own consulting practice now, I have learned and I've advised people and I've learned it myself. You cannot build anything on your own. So it is an ego trap to think you want to replicate you. Who would want to replicate yourself anyway? Because there are things that you can't do great that others can do better than you. you know? So yeah, I think there's a lot to be said with moving away or moving people, getting people to think differently that they don't need to do it on alone. And the first question you should be asking is, who can help me with this? Exactly. And it's taken me years to come to, to them because everything I would think, right, okay, I need to learn a new skill mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. I need to learn to do this. And no, I just need to understand how it works. Mm -hmm. That's all I need to do. Mm -hmm. The fact is whatever happens after that mm -hmm. is that I need to then be able to understand how it works and who is the best person that can do this job. And I think I'll add to that a story. I needed some videos done. Okay. And um, I ran a workshop recently and I wanted to get some test video testimonials from the participants. Historically, Morton of Old would have been trying to do that himself. Okay. I think I need to go and see the client, the, the, the person who attended. I'd have to go and see them. I'd arrange it. I thought, no. I contacted somebody who was a very good photographer and a, a videographer and I said to him, can you take care of that for me? He said, absolutely. So I'm, I'm not... I'm out of that now. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't need to negotiate and manage that at all. So that's an example where you begin to realize that to grow anything, you need to have other people on board. You've got you know? to. And so it's not just me. I discussed this at an earlier podcast uh, with a lady called Leslie Reeves, and she was saying that it's about the people that you have around you. Mm -hmm. And I always advise people, get your team get your people, get mm. your crew, mm. get the people that you can pick up the phone to who will know what needs to be done mm. and who get the job done. Because I think that's when you start, once you get used to that, 
your approach to things is completely different because everything becomes an opportunity. Richard Branson has got this quote, oh, we say yes to everything and then work out how you're going to do it afterwards, which is, I suppose, the white English way of saying fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds really great when you've got Necker Island. Mm. But when you're, you're sleeping on your neck, it, it's just a completely, <laughs> completely different story. And I think that is interesting, mm. but I do think that to a certain extent, it's slightly misleading. Mm. Because what you should have really said is, is that if somebody gives you an opportunity, say yes, but make sure when you are saying yes, you can find somebody else who can bring that to fruition. Yeah, who can help you. Yeah. Yeah, whom you can do it with. Yeah, because there's a many person who've lost an opportunity because they just couldn't deliver it. Well, sometimes the, the lack of delivery is because of the lack of self-belief. True. That's a good point. You're competent, capable, you're overwhelmed and anxious about the opportunity itself, and then you sabotage it. So sometimes it isn't because of the people around, it's actually because of you. You know what I mean? Um, that's also a big aspect. Yeah, get, I mean, it's the Americans say, get out of your own way. Absolutely, yeah. But let me have a, another approach at this question because after the failure of the books company, mm. why did you not decide then to not only get involved in business, why didn't you just go and work for somebody else? Okay, after getting knocked off your horse, what made you then decide to then get back in the saddle and then basically find yourself a new opportunity in, in, and, and in turn become a, an entrepreneur? I think that when you have an unsettling spirit, which is, I was constantly unsatisfied. There always seemed to be more, I like the freedom of working independently. So I knew that the actual thing is that when I was working and I decided to do the books business, I knew that that just was not for me forever and ever until I get the gold watch. I just could not see it in myself. So what made me get back is that even though I went back into full-time employment, I was still dissatisfied. I still felt that there was more. I was still creating things, reading things. Within me, I just couldn't, I just couldn't sit down and, and just accept that that was my lot. You then decide that you are in going to embark on entrepreneurship again. Mm. So you then basically get the sequel. Morton the sequel. <laughs> this is cool. It's a good way of putting it. It's an interesting. So let's just say going on to your second phase, what do you think you wish somebody had told you when you first started out? I'm going to answer that this way. Okay. Which is, it isn't so much about what somebody would have told me, it's about my ability to listen. Good point. Yeah. I got a lot of advice. I did receive a lot of advice. I just didn't listen to it because I was gung-ho I mean, I was clear on what I wanted to do. What I wish somebody had told me is that when you get good advice, listen to it, okay? There's no need, as my brother has said to me, there's no need for you to drink my Pepsi. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in essence, you know, this is the thing about modeling success as opposed to modeling failure. It's really learning to model people who have done it successfully. Um, so what I think I was advised to do is... Go and learn that business a little bit more than starting off just by yourself. So what I should have done is I should have gotten a job or something in that sector. And if somebody should have told me something in a much more concrete way, it would have been keep clear about what you want to achieve, Morton. But I think you should go and learn the business side of it a bit more and really, because I think if I had done that, 
Maybe even if I had gotten a job in one of the audiobook bookshops, yeah, and really understand, I would have cut down a lot of time and money wasted because I would have seen from inside how things work. That's what I wish somebody really would have impressed powerfully. And in so and impressing that, me listening. That's a, it's a very good point because it's something that my mum always used to say, you must pick sense from nonsense. <laughs> it's an old West Indian thing. And the fact is, it's, it's true because sometimes I don't necessarily always agree with everybody. Yeah, I always come back to it because of that legal background and that years spent listening to judges, sitting behind barristers, doing cases yourself. You become very critical of everything. Yeah, And you then become not critical in a negative way, but you learn to pick out the facts yeah. and sit down what makes sense. So you can be talking to me for an hour, but there will be just one thing that you said, you know, in minute 37, mm. that sticks in my mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Because at the end of that's the important thing for me that I've taken away. Mm. Absolutely. And as I said, I, I think you are right. I think sometimes listening to what people have to say, because the amount of people that actually start businesses in things they have no experience in mm-hmm. is actually quite amazing. Yeah, it's a lot. I see these programs sometimes in the afternoon, a home in the country or something like that. And these people basically leave London and they go and buy some farmhouse in the middle of France. Can't speak French. Yeah. yeah. French don't like them. They mm-hmm. don't like French. <laughs> so it, it, you know you're going to have a problem here. Yeah. But these people then make up that this is going to be their life. Mm. So then they traipse down to France and then they realise things ain't exactly what it is. Have you ever run a B&B before? No. Have you ever run a restaurant before? No. I've cooked a fry up for my friends. That's about as far yeah. as it's gone. Yeah. And the reality of that situation is, is that you can see those people, unless they learn incredibly quickly, mm-hmm. are not equipped yeah. to really deal with that. Building a business is challenging. Building a business is hard work because there are so many things you have to learn along the way. One of them is what you can do really well and what you can't. You might enjoy engaging with people, but you don't like doing accounts and the detailed stuff. You might not enjoy sales, but you like the technical aspect of delivering the work. So you might be terrible at sales. It's really the challenge about business is really learning the systems and how to put the systems together and knowing which part of the, which of the systems that works really well for you in terms of that you're very good at and you're capable and others that you should really hand over to others. I think that's a good point. And that's a good point for us to have a break. We'll be back with you after a word from our sponsor. See you then. Bad debtors can rob you of your time and money. They can destroy your whole business within weeks. Archaic debt collection agencies and expensive legal fees will drain your cash flow. But in one day, the PRMS Business Debt Prevention Course will teach you how to create late payment management procedures, invoice for immediate settlement, and eradicate existing debt. You'll study real-life examples to drag your business out of the red. Visit www.prmsltd.co.uk or call 203 865-7138 to register now before bad debtors make your business another failed statistic. Hello and welcome back to the Cashflow Show with our guest, Mr. Morton Patterson of Morton Patterson Consulting. We were discussing earlier the trials and tribulations of um, being involved in business and how challenging it is. But it's not all work and no play. So we've always asked our guests to answer some questions. And uh, these ones are a little bit more relaxed and a little less intense. 
And Morton, obviously mm. you, you, you've got the memo. Everybody gets the memo. Mm-hmm. Let's go into it. What is your favourite film and why, if you have one? I, 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 that's such a hard question. It is. Hard. All of these questions, these, this section is the, probably the hardest bit. People find it easy to talk about their business, but that bit is, is the thing that throws them. Yeah. Um, my favourite film is Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah. It's a film with um, Robert De Niro, yeah. a 1920s, I think, around the bootlegging time. And I remember going to the cinema to see that, and it was a long film, but I could watch that film over and over again. Fantastic. It's a um, great film. Great film. You know, that's, that's one of my favorites. I have several. I also like the Godfather trilogy, you know, but that's, that's my thing. When I think of a film and then anyone says to me, what's your favorite? I say Once Upon a Time in America. Because, I mean, that was a film that is, it's about three hours long. Yeah, it's it? right, yeah. But yeah. the reality of it is, is that it's a film that was made as three hours when three hour films weren't being made. It's not yeah. like these Avengers mm. come back again. <laughs> and it's, you know, you've got, you know, some ridiculous amount of screen time, three, three yeah. and a half hours. Yeah. I mean, this was quite a while ago, yeah. but it's a classic film, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, one of my favourite films. Okay, excellent. Mm. Let's move on to your favourite book. Now, this obviously has more significance because I didn't know about your background in books before today. So therefore, as I said before, obviously I know that when you, as soon as you said that, I thought the book choice would be very interesting. This was also very difficult because I'm a man, I love books. You know, everywhere I go, I have a book. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat. Okay, Carol. Probably answered in the context of the books that had massive impact on me. Okay, that's a good that's a good way of dealing with it. Yes, why not? One of them was the Black Jacobins. Okay, by CLR James. I remember we talked about Haiti and Toussaint Louverture, and how he really destroyed the French army at the time. And from being a slave, had the brilliance in terms of internal warfare. And CLR James, I thought was a fantastic writer. Yeah, love that book. So that's, that's, that's one of my favorite books. And I think, you know, thinking about this, this is a hard question because there are so many. Well, just, do you know some, if you wanted to have five books, you could have five books. We usually do distill it down to one to make it easier for people. But if you've got more, we'll take them. That had an impression and an impact on me. Black Jacobins, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey was quite pivotal in terms of me developing myself as a person and understanding relationships with others. The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho, fantastic book about a boy and his journey, which I think is reflective of us who are being faced with decisions as to whether we should leave the safety of our home and our family and go on to the journey, you know, the hero's journey, they call it. So it would be The Seven Habits, The Black Jacobins, The Alchemist, and the last one, of many, but I'm just going to go with that, is value-based fees, which started me on the journey of my work now, which is value-based fees by um, Alan Weiss. Excellent. That's brilliant. I'm going to come back to um, value-based fees in a moment. What I'm going to do, though, is to do one thing. What is your advice to anyone thinking of starting a business? Be really clear on whether you understand the difference between being an employee and being a business owner, because it's very different, and what they both entail. And the other thing is 
to have the patience to really understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and to write out the vision. Whenever I sit down with a client, potentially for the first time, I say to them, write out for me a year from now what you see your business achieving. So if somebody is starting out with their business, many people don't want to do this exercise. Yeah. Write down what you see that business looking like. Where would it be? How would it be? It doesn't need to be... I want you to just allow yourself to think of this thing that's been running around in your head. I'm not saying go away and write a business plan because the, the word plan can just send people into a, a tizzy and then they don't want to do it. But I want you to write out your idea really clearly on what it is you want to achieve. What is it that business is doing? What is it? Who is it going to help? How is it going to help you? And how is it going to help the other person? So write it down on paper. Write your idea down on paper before you start getting a domain name, start to build a website, start to do flyers and all of that stuff. What I'm going to say you must do is write out your idea clearly. That's excellent. I remember a friend of mine and she was obsessed with that. If she had some business cards, she was in business. And I said to her, that's helpful. But the reality is, is what is your business? What does it do? How does it help people? How does it help others? What does it do? What's your business about? Mm. And it's sometimes you try to explain things to people because it seems as if it's incredibly simple. Mm. However, the difficulty for most people is, is that they don't want to see that this is going to entail work. Mm -hmm. And if you get involved in business without realizing that it's going to tell, take every inch mm. of you, all of your time, all of your money, all of your energy. Mm -hmm. If you've still got people that are still talking to you, at the end of it, you've done well. Mm -hmm. Because it really does consume people. And that's why successful people are usually on their second, third, fourth marriage. Yeah. Mm. Because the fact is, is that, you know, the reality of it is, is that- it's what it's asking of you. Of course. Yeah, it's what it's Because asking. it takes a lot. And, yeah. keep, and if you want to be at the top and stay at the top, whoa, mm. you know, it's- it, it requires a commitment. Yeah. Yeah, and be prepared. I think I've read somewhere in the past where they say, be prepared to some degree, and maybe you can't until you get into, to understand the commitment that's required. Yes. And we're talking about somebody who's starting a business. As I'm listening to, I'm reminded of a situation. A couple of years ago, there was a, a Trinidadian takeaway in um, South London. Well-established, the food is good. And then... Another West Indian takeaway opened up two doors away. So, now, so far, so normal. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now, to me, if that person were to say to me, how do you think I should go about launching this business? I'd say, think about what you want to achieve. Who do you want to attract? Who do you want to provide this food for? And where is your customer? Where are your customers coming from? And why would they want to eat this food? Da, 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 da. And then think about where your location is going to be. I understand that they were very near to the tube station, but do you need to be next door? At the end of the day, they ended up closing down eventually because they were nowhere near as established or profitable as the other company. So, you know, when you're starting to think about a business, the amount of times I think enough thought has not gone into location, the service, the people that's required, how you're going to deliver it, but very much in thinking through your idea and probably seeking some serious advice before launching and investing all that money. The reason why I'm pausing here is that if I had 
20 pounds for every time I've seen that happen. Mm -hmm. I would be very, very comfortable. I'd be doing this in the Caribbean and you would be sitting here in London because I would be doing this on Skype. Absolutely. The problem is what I don't understand is this. It's the psychology of when people have 20 parking spaces, but they park right next to the only car that's in the parking space. I've never understood this logic. It's complete madness. So why would you then take your business and your fresh business idea to put it right next to an established business, knowing you're competing with footfall, that you're competing with um, uh, a customer base, you're competing with every single thing. Because if somebody gets used to buying from one particular takeaway, unless something goes wrong and there's a health and safety issue, they're going to keep buying from it. Yeah. So why would they change? This is something that happens very much in African Caribbean culture, mm. where you will have a street and there will be seven barbershops on that street. Now, unless you have the capacity and the overflow in order to deal with those potential customers, people who get their hair cut at a particular barbershop, they're going to keep going there unless their particular barber defects mm -hmm. and goes to a rival barbershop or sets up by themselves. But why people decide if there are six barbershops already in existence to put another barbershop I, I find it really distressing, really distressing, because I'm thinking, can anybody not think outside the box? Well, sometimes there is a psychology around opening your shop, which is why you might find two Indian grocers very close to each other. You know, there is something around, because it's, it's frequented in that area, it's better to do it because people are used to going to that particular location. Right. Yeah. That's one of the reasons. It's something around a psychological aspect. Oh, yeah. Around I, that, yeah. Yeah, I can uh, see that. Yeah. I can you see why that but, makes sense. You know, I agree with you with the point. I mean, uh, we're both of Caribbean origin. I agree with you. I mean, I had the same barber when I had hair for 15 years. <laughs> you know, and I didn't go anywhere else unless he was away. Correct. And I'd go to the same place, but I'd get somebody else in the same shop to cut my hair. Exactly. Yeah? So you make absolute sense in the sense that and that comes back to your original question of what would advice would I give people? Research your stuff. Think about whom you want to provide it for. And don't go for something comfortable and safe. When you're going next to the man who's already built up his clientele and trying to basically steal them, that might not be the best thing. Well, no. I mean, I, that's one thing I think, to be totally honest, I think too many people are afraid to be pioneers. Yeah. And I can see that they, if, if there are three other grocery shops or four other barbers or four other jerk chicken shops, I mean, it's, it really depends down to taste. Mm. And people of African Caribbean origin tend to be very selective about where they eat. Yeah. So if they will pick one place and one person and literally one person who they will choose to eat from. Mm. So as a consequence, if you sit up there, unless they know you, mm. you've got no chance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a very interesting prospect. Mm. And, uh, I'm, uh, and I'm glad that you were able to shed some light on there because maybe the, that safety in numbers, I suppose to a certain extent, it works on Savile Row. Absolutely. So I can, I can see Savile And Hatton Garden. Yeah, and Hatton yeah. Garden, yeah. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, I think there's enough footfall in... Yes, <laughs> yeah. For everyone to get a piece to, of the pie. To get a piece yeah. of the pie. Absolutely, so. yeah. Those are examples of businesses that may or may not be successful. What do you feel has been your biggest success or been your biggest business success? Creating the opportunities around knowing your value and value pricing. Today, I'm a, I am a consultant who I, I work with businesses 
and as an executive coach, helping them to implement value pricing strategies where I charge a fee for the service that I provided. And I am not the cheapest man in the block, let's just say. But the point is, it wasn't always that way. It was a case where I used to charge an hourly fee and I used to undercharge, just like you talking about you lucky to, to still have a house, you know. <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about it yeah, anymore. It's, it's, it's paid for, it's paid for. <laughs> I notoriously, notoriously undercharged for my services. And that's what led me to what I'd call my success today because I felt that I needed to find a solution. And I went away, studied, was mentored around how to do it differently. Value-based fees was pioneered by Alan Weiss, who wrote a book called Value-Based Fees. Yeah. But I felt that that book, which I devoured and read several times and still have it on my bookshelf today and refer to it, was a book that was aimed at people who were charging 100000 200000 or a million in consulting fees. And that was not the businesses that I was consulting with. So in actual fact, I took it and diluted it for the small business owner, the independent practitioner who is running his own little business. You know, might be a solicitor and professional services, might be a creative, a small team of 20 people, or maybe just one person. And created a system that they could understand of how they can charge fees by the value of the service they provide and not by the hour. So my biggest success has been helping people to transition from charging an hourly fee to charging a fee based on the result of the outcome that they have their clients to achieve. And that, I think, will be my biggest success. And I've established it and created it as called the Know Your Value System. I can see what the outcome is meant to be. Mm. But what is driving me is in terms of uh, my question is that there are a lot of people that are sitting there and obviously you've got a consultancy so that it's for people to go along and seek you out. Mm. But when do you think that people most recognize is it because they've got no bank money in their bank account that they recognize that they need to change their um, structure or value pricing? No, it isn't because of that, I don't think. I think it's because when you charge by the hour, I think ultimately you realize that it's, it's a situation where you're losing and ultimately the customer's leaving, losing because you constantly have to justify your fees. So it might not be because there's no money in the bank account, because moving over to implementing a value pricing strategy in your business, however, is tough because it requires a certain degree of belief in yourself and it challenges the, the traditional way of doing things, which is I'm going to charge you £150 an hour, £90 an hour. We're all used to that. And so you'll have your money in the bank account for £90 an hour. What happens is that maybe you could have charged 200 and you didn't know. So let me give you a story. I delivered a workshop recently on one of my participants. She's in the legal field of tax and she consults people about inheritance and stuff to do with HMRC and also if they're going through a divorce. Her fees for doing a report for a particular client range from £875 to maybe £1,300. Okay. But she charged an hourly fee. She, we did some work together and she wanted to increase her hourly fee from, let's just say, £300 to £500. But there's a mental switch going on there with, will the client accept it and all of that kind of stuff. So she had money in her bank account. The thing about value pricing was to get her to move away from thinking, oh, I need to do five hours at £200 
as opposed to, and move towards, it isn't five hours, it's what will that client do with this stuff that I've provided for them? So in summarizing that story, we did some work together. She started to ask the clients questions around what would the result do for them? What will they be able to achieve now that they've got this report? And she was able to move from 875 pounds to 2,500 pounds for a report. That's because she didn't say to the client, it's going to take me five hours. She spoke to the client about what they wanted to achieve. And in the client engaging in that conversation and being asked questions, which really dug deep in why, how, why, how does it make you feel? What will you do for it? She moved away from this is going to take me four hours to this is what you're going to get at the end. And to get that at the end, it's going to be 2,500. It's more than 100% increase in her fees. So the value, implementing value-based fees is a challenging concept for many people because they're used to staying with the hourly fee thing. I hope that answers your question. No, that's really helpful because, as I said, I think the problem is, is that most people dream of being in that position, yeah. but they think that they have to be a big shot. Yeah, that's right. But the reality of it is, is that I learned in business is that you have to believe in the value that you're providing. Absolutely. And I think it really starts internally. And yeah. I think maybe if I was explaining this to somebody, I would say, in a sense, you have to work on yourself before you work on your business. Mm -hmm. And it's like that analogy when you're on the plane and it says that, you know, if the air pressure drops, put the mask over your mouth before mm -hmm. you put the mask over the child's mm -hmm. mouth. And I think that a lot of people need to work on themselves, how they see themselves yeah. in their business. Because to a certain extent, people look at you and price you. Yeah. I always use the Harley Street analogy, whereas you've got two doctors, one at Elephant and Castle, one at Harley Street. Now, the one at Elephant and Castle has got more qualifications than the one at Harley Street. But who's going to get paid more? Yeah. Harley Street. Yeah. But the fact is, the man at Harley Street knows that amongst his peers and contemporaries, he's going to be charging what they're charging, if he's anything at all, which is always going to be, and he will get the value based on it because he's A, got the confidence and B, the fact is people expect to pay that much. Whereas the guy says, I'm better qualified than this guy then at Harley Street, you know, but I'm here in Elephant. And the guy goes, yeah, but you're an Elephant. Now, no, tomorrow probably Elephant will become gentrified by the time this <laughs> podcast comes out. But ultimately, that's what people see. And when you, and we often talk a lot about networking on, mm -hmm. the, on this podcast. And one of the things that we talk about is how people make a perception about you when, you, when they meet you. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. make a perception on your business card. Mm -hmm. They make a perception on your clothes. Mm -hmm. They make a perception on everything mm -hmm. that adds the value. Mm -hmm to a certain situation. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if at the end of the day, sometimes with a lot of people, it's that looking in the mirror and mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. you know, I am worth it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is a key part in terms of knowing you're worthy. But also the other part is how you approach the client. The guy in Elephant can charge as much as the man in Harley Street. Yeah. He just has to believe that he is so convinced about the result he can provide for the person that it doesn't matter where they come. Elephant may be a plush office as well. Yeah. The point is the challenge that many independent professionals have is they challenge, they question their own self. They question their experience. They question their validity in being there. They question, they don't give themselves sufficient permission to do, give and have what it is they want. So one part of it is your location. 
a part of it is your psychology, your psychology. But the other part of it is really having a thorough understanding of being able to communicate to the customer how much better off they will be at the end and not how long it will take you, not the time it takes or the process you're going to leave. At the end of this, you will be able to do X, Y, Z. What many professionals do is to say, oh, it's going to take me three hours. I'm going to get this report. Then I'm going to have to pull this down. I don't care. What can I do with that? And we need to focus on what they can do with the result. And that is what they pay for. They don't pay for the time. And many professionals are too caught up in, I'm going to charge you this time. I'm going to do it this way. And I don't care. Can I do what I want to do? Because that's why I came to see you. Well, you've got me sold on that, Morton. <laughs> so <laughs> wonderful. If, if I'm a sold on it, and as everybody who is listening is sold on it, where can they find Morton Patterson and Morton Patterson Consulting? They can find me on LinkedIn. If you go onto LinkedIn, you can find me there. Also at my website, which is mortonpatterson.com. The other thing is, if you're interested, I'd suggest that you get in touch for us to just have an exploratory conversation. Send me an email, go to my website on the contact us page and send me an email. And also I have a workshop, which is an introductory workshop, which is on the 4th of July on pricing and valuing your service. Full day workshop. If you're interested, I think in the first instance, it would be best for us to have a conversation. That's a full day workshop where at the end of it, you will learn around the difference about why it is not in your best interest to charge by the hour, how to start to package your services, and how to look at the beliefs, the psychology around what is blocking you from charging by the hour. And the most important thing, how to make that switch, how to move, how to stop charging by the hour and start charging by value. That's one of the key things that you will leave the workshop knowing how to do. Morton Patterson of Morton Patterson Consultant, thank you very much for joining us here on the Cashflow Show. Really appreciate it for taking the time and sharing um, uh, your wisdom and insight in terms of business and in life. And we just want to say thank you very much. You're and welcome. look forward to hearing more about what you're doing in the near future and obviously where people can find mm. you. Thank you for the invitation, Clayton. You're most really, welcome. really enjoyable session. You're Thanks. most welcome. Well, that's another end of an episode of the Cashflow Show. I'm Clayton M. Coke. I hope you've enjoyed yourself and you found some information, some tips and hints and just general conversation for your business. Until next time, take care. Goodbye.